You are listening to New Covenant Fellowship. Well, last week we began a new series entitled The Kingdom, What It Means. And in this series we are endeavoring to kind of answer that question. Okay, if we are in the kingdom, if we are the kingdom, then what? What does that mean for us? How then shall we live? What kind of implications does that have on the way that we live our lives? And so uh, last week we kind of did an introductory review, overview kind of message where we took essentially 25 weeks worth of teaching from our last two sermon series and kind of crammed it all together and said, hey, remember all this? That's going to be kind of important to have as our foundation as we move forward. And one of the three things that I kind of wanted you guys to walk away with last week was a basic definition of the kingdom. Um, so this is crowd participation time. Can anybody uh, recall how we defined the kingdom last week? Somebody who is paying attention. The territory over which God reigns. Okay. The community or territory over which Christ reigns as king. That is the kingdom. And so based on that definition, you and I are in the kingdom. You and I are the kingdom. Now, the second thing, uh, or two of three things that I wanted to drive home last week, was the nature of the kingdom. In a word, can anybody recall the nature of the kingdom? Okay, spiritual. The nature of the kingdom is spiritual. Um, and the third thing that I hoped to drive home last week was, yes, the scriptures do teach this already and not yet aspect to the kingdom. You find that in the scriptures. <clears throat> However, when were those scriptures written? <clears throat> they were written between 30 and 70 A.D. And between 30 and 70 A.D., there was an already and not yet aspect to the kingdom. But since 70 AD, there has only been already, already. There's no more not yet. You and I, right now, dwell in and are part of a fully consummated kingdom. There's no more to come as far as the kingdom coming in its fullness. It came in its fullness in 70 AD at the end of the Old Covenant age with the destruction of Jerusalem by Rome. Okay, So with that said, that brings up a lot of questions that we're going to try to answer throughout this sermon. <coughs> Namely, what does it mean? Kind of like a double rainbow kind of question. What does it mean? If we are dwelling in a fully consummated kingdom, what does that mean for you and me? So this morning, uh, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. What we'll do is... Uh, this morning, we'll kind of start to look at the Sermon on the Mount, and we'll kind of answer that question, what does the Sermon on the Mount have to do with the kingdom? How does the Sermon on the Mount relate to the kingdom? What kind of implications uh, does it have in a kingdom context? Now, you uh, may recall Matthew chapter 5 through 7 is, is known as the Sermon on the Mount. You may recall a couple of years ago, um, Josh Miller actually stood before you in here and recited the entire Sermon on the Mount, uh, which was really neat. And some of you may be very familiar with the Sermon on the Mount. Some of you in this room have it memorized. Uh, you may have done a Bible study through the Sermon on the Mount. You may have no idea about the Sermon on the Mount. Either way, I guarantee you, regardless of where you're at with the Sermon on the Mount, based on your 
understanding of the kingdom after having all this kingdom context, you will see the Sermon on the Mount with fresh eyes through the lens of the kingdom. Studying the Sermon on the Mount in the context of the kingdom will bring a fresh perspective to it, and you'll probably see things in there that you never saw before. And I'm going to make a very bold statement right now, but I believe it to be true. To the degree that you understand typology, you will understand the kingdom. I will go so far as to say, to the degree that you grasp and understand types and shadows, you will understand the redemptive story of the Bible. The better you understand typology, the better you'll understand scripture. The better you'll understand the story in the Bible of God's redemptive plan. <clears throat> so, crowd, participa crowd participation time. Who can tell me a definition of types and shadows? Old Testament figures, persons, or things that point forward to Christ. Yeah. Not always Christ, but most of the time, Christ. Old Testament <clears throat> people, places, things, and events that foreshadowed New Testament realities, spiritual realities, known as the antitypes, okay? So the pattern that we find in the scriptures are physical or natural elements, people, places, and events in the Old Testament, foreshadowing spiritual realities found in the New Testament. So based on that definition alone, I asked earlier about the, the nature of the kingdom. If the kingdom is the antitype of Old Covenant Israel dwelling in the Promised Land, which we've discussed at length in here, then what we've got in the Old Testament is a physical or natural people group in a geographical territory that foreshadows a spiritual or heavenly habitation or a spiritual community. So that alone, that idea alone, helps you to grasp the nature of the kingdom. So what, what helps here is to, to recall the storyline and to put it in basic terms. The storyline goes like this. God's people were enslaved in Egypt. A Passover lamb was slaughtered. God redeemed his people. They wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And at the end of that 40-year wilderness wandering period, they entered into the promised land that they received as their inheritance. Okay. Now, if you understand typology, you will see that storyline in the New Testament. If you don't understand typology... You won't see that storyline in the New Testament, but it's there. It's there. You've got a spiritual Egypt enslaving God's true people, Revelation 11.8. You've got Christ, the true Passover lamb, whose blood is shed, 1 Corinthians 5.7b. And you've got God redeeming his true people who wander in the wilderness for 40 years between 30 and 70 AD as they transition from slavery to freedom. And at the end of that 40 years wilderness wandering period, at the end of the Old Covenant age, with the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, God's true people receive their inheritance in the kingdom. Matthew 25, verse 34. <clears throat> the new promised land flowing with milk and honey. But again, this antitype, this storyline that we find corresponding to the Old Testament, we find it in the New, it's a 
spiritual retelling of the same story. It's the same story of Old Covenant Israel recapitulated in Christ and his true people. <clears throat> so what does all this have to do with the Sermon on the Mount? A lot. The question you have to ask is, where does the Sermon on the Mount fit into the storyline? So think about the storyline. When you've got the storyline that we just considered, you've got God's people making an exodus out of Egypt. During that exodus, during that wilderness wandering period, God gives on the mountain a law to Moses to give to the people. In other words, God appointed a prophet, his servant, his chosen one, to speak on his behalf to the people to give them rules, regulations, ordinances, and commandments, a covenant by which they were to live in the land. In other words, Moses, prepare my people Israel for life in the land. And throughout the Old Testament, you find verse after verse after verse that connects the law of Moses to life in the promised land. I'm going to give you a land flowing with milk and honey as I promised to Abraham, your forefather. And as you enter that land, this is how you are to live in the land, according to these 600 plus commandments. All right. For example, here's one verse that kind of makes that quite clear. Deuteronomy 4, verse 5. See, Moses speaking here. See, I have taught you decrees and laws as the Lord my God commanded me, so that you may follow them in the land you are entering to take possession of it. So the whole point is, as they transition into life in the land, as they go from slavery in Egypt to life in the promised land, here is the law by which you are to live in the land. All right? Got it? How does that correspond to the New Testament storyline? Well, during that 30-year transition period from slavery to freedom as they were making their exodus out of this spiritual Egypt, which is according to Revelation 11.8, where also their Lord was crucified, a.k.a. Old Covenant Jerusalem, as they were moving toward a new Jerusalem, what do we have? We have Jesus, who is the antitype of Moses, God's servant, the prophet who he raised up to speak on his behalf, tell the people this is how they are to live in the new land. In other words, just as Moses prepared Old Covenant Israel for life in the promised land through the law, so also Jesus goes up on a mount, gives words by which they are to live life in the coming kingdom. Just as Moses prepared the Old Covenant people for life in the land, so Jesus prepares the true people for life in the new land, the kingdom. All right? So how does the Sermon on the Mount fit in? It's the antitype of the law. Jesus, the new Moses, gives the new people the new law for life in the new land, life in the new Jerusalem. So let's move into Matthew chapter 5, and we'll see very clearly the connection between Jesus and Moses in the Sermon on the Mount and life in the kingdom. All right, Matthew 5, beginning in verse 1, we see, Now when he, that is Jesus, saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, dot, dot, dot. Um, according to uh, Greg Gibson, in his book, All Old Testament Laws Canceled, he says this on page 52. There's another reason why Jesus is likely giving a new law in the Sermon on the Mount. He was the anti-type fulfillment of Moses and Israel. 
Then he goes on to list several parallels between Moses and Jesus. And we've talked about these before. You've got uh, a king who is worried about his position as king, and so he has all these babies killed. We see that happening with Pharaoh and Moses, and then we see that embodied again with Herod and Jesus. And we see all kinds of stuff that points to, hey, here's the new Moses. Here's the antitype. There's something to this Jesus guy. Now, after giving a whole bunch of parallels, Greg Gibson points this out. Old law given from a mountain, and then he quotes from Exodus 19, 20 through 20, verse 1 and following. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up, and God spoke all these words, saying, dot, dot, dot. And he corresponds that to new law given from a mountain. Seeing the crowds, he went up on a mountain. And he goes on to say these commandments. He goes on to say these words, citing from the Sermon on the Mount, pointing out, again, just as Moses went up on a mount to receive the law to give to the people, so also Jesus goes up on a mount to receive the law to give to the people for life in the land. All right? Then, beginning in verse 3, we have a series of statements that begins with the words, blessed are. Blessed are. Now, the word uh, translated as blessed in the original Greek is makarios, which means fortunate or happy. Fortunate or happy. Have you ever heard uh, it taught that God does not care about your happiness, he cares about your holiness? You ever heard that said? I understand where people are coming from when they say that, but it's not true. <laughs> God does care about your happiness, and he cares about your holiness. And in fact, they go hand in hand. Happy are dot, dot, dot. He cares about our happiness. <clears throat> in fact, if you'll, if you'll recall in our study of the parables, in Jesus' explanation of the parables of the weeds and the wheat, he ends that section with this explanation. And then in Matthew 13, verse 43, he says, Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. You catch that? The righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. So God's kingdom people are to be shining happy people. You like that? I like that. All right. So let's see what kind of people are blessed. Let's see what kind of people are happy and fortunate according to Jesus' words. Beginning in verse 3, we see, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, one of the goals of our message this morning is we want to connect the dots between Sermon on the Mount and the kingdom. Right here, we see it explicitly stated. The kingdom. Who does the kingdom belong to? The poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It belongs to the poor in spirit. Now, remember, this would have been a very shocking statement to a lot of Jesus' audience because in their minds, according to their lineage, according to their pedigree, the kingdom was already theirs. They were Israel. It already belonged to them. And now Jesus is saying, no, no, it belongs to the poor in spirit, not necessarily to all of Israel. So again, we have Jesus making a distinction within the house of Israel. Not all who are Israel are Israel. The king doesn't belong to every flesh and blood descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It belongs to the poor in spirit. Now the question here, in my opinion, is what does Jesus mean by this? What is Jesus intending to communicate by 
the poor in spirit. Now, there's a lot of different takes on it. Well, I'd say that. The general consensus is actually this. What Jesus means here is those who recognize their spiritual poverty, those who recognize their own sinful depravity and their need for God, their need for a Savior. In other words, not those who in pride say, I've got it all together, but those who in humility say, I'm, you know what, I'm, I'm, apart from God's grace, I'm nothing. I'm not righteous in and of myself. So that's how most commentators will treat this particular verse. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who recognize their need for God and his righteousness. Theirs is the king. Okay? When you pick up commentary, most of the time, that's what you'll read. And I believe that that is true. Blessed are those who recognize their spiritual needs. Blessed are those who uh, are humble. Um, I believe that a timeless precept that we find throughout the scriptures is God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. We find that over and over and over. I don't know, however, that that is exactly what Jesus is communicating here. Um, I do know this, though. Keep your finger in Matthew 5 and flip over to Luke 6. Luke 6 uh, records a lot of the same things as Matthew 5. Luke records a lot of these same blessings. In fact, four identical blessings. But Luke, he adds some woes that correspond to these blessings. And I want to take a quick look at these uh, to maybe shed some light on what's going on here in Matthew 5.3. And at least show the possibility that the idea of humility with regard to righteousness may not necessarily be what Jesus is communicating here, although that is a good thing. All right. Luke 6, beginning in verse 20, we read, Looking at his disciples, he, Jesus, said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. So you, you see that the similarity there in the language between Matthew's take on this and Luke's take on this. Matthew says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. Luke simply says, Blessed are you who are poor. It doesn't add the whole in spirit thing. Uh, go ahead and look down to verse 24. As I mentioned, Luke shows these blessings, but he also shows some corresponding woes. Okay? So let, let's, let's look at all these. Blessed are you who are poor, verse 20, for yours is the kingdom of God. Verse 24, but woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. All right, now go back to verse 21. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Now go down to 25. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Go back up to verse 21. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Go back down to 25b. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Go back up to 22. Blessed are you when men hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Go back down to 26. Woe to you when men speak well of you, for that is how their fathers treated the false prophets. So you see how, how Luke shows this take. Blessed are you who are this, but woe to you who are the opposite. Okay? Um, and, and my reason for, for going to Luke here is to show that if you take Luke's account as parallel to Matthew's, 
Luke doesn't add the in spirit. He's simply talking in terms of worldly wealth, possessions. <clears throat> so, with that being said, I, I think that perhaps it's possible that Matthew is saying the same thing. That's not conclusive. It's just a thought. Just throwing it out there. What we do know is that in the first century, the tendency was, and, and we can find this in James. In fact, keep your finger in, if you want to keep Luke, you can, but definitely in Matthew. But turn over to James chapter 2, and, and what I want to point out here is this first century context with regard to riches, wealth, versus poverty. Okay. By and large, there was a tendency that the wealthy were unbelievers and that the poor were believers, generally speaking. Yes, there were a few rich believers here and there. Yes, there were poor people who didn't believe. But generally speaking, that seemed to be the tendency for a few different reasons. One seemed to be that those who already had worldly wealth were already satisfied. They felt no need for this Jesus character. Another reason, I believe, was uh, those who were the religious leaders were putting pressure on the people to have nothing to do with believers. And so they wouldn't trade with them. They wouldn't do business with them. So they were driven into a state of poverty oftentimes. And throughout the scriptures, you find that it is the marginalized that God tends to take up the cause of. The alien, the widow, the fatherless, the poor. But the wealthy, those who had it all together, they didn't need God, and so they got all self-righteous, and they were the ones doing damage to these marginalized people. That was the tendency throughout Israel's history. Now you see history repeating itself in the first century. James makes this clear. Okay? Look at James chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. James says, Listen, my dear brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? But you have insulted the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong? So you see here, James is making it quite clear. The tendency is the rich people were slandering the name of Jesus. They were exploiting the poor believers. The poor believers were being mistreated by these rich people who were unbelieving. You see how James is drawing out that first century context there? Now flip over to James chapter 5. Here James addresses the rich people and the poor people again. He gives comfort to the poor, just as Jesus does. James really echoes Jesus' words here. And he gives woe to the rich, just as Jesus does. James chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Look at what James says. Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. On the horizon was coming God's wrath. Verse 2. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Now James is employing um, a device that was used by the Old Testament prophets known as prolepsis where he's speaking of an event 
as having already happened, though it hadn't yet. He's saying your wealth has rotted, moths have eaten your clothes. Well, it hadn't necessarily literally happened yet. It's as good as though it had, though. Okay? It was coming on the horizon. Your wealth is rotted, moths have eaten your clothes, your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. Look, you have hoarded wealth in the last days. The wages you failed to pay the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. Who is he talking to? The rich people. What were they doing? Not paying wages to the workers who mowed their fields. And what was going on? Their cries were crying out against them. They were crying out to the Lord. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. This is what we see throughout the scriptures. God's people were being oppressed. They cried out to God. God heard their cries, and then God put the whoop on their oppressors. <laughs> Verse 5. Now remember who he's talking to here. He's talking, remember, listen you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that's coming upon you. Verse 5. He's still talking to those rich people who were exploiting the poor. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. Well, that evokes imagery that's found in the book of Jeremiah. Just as Jeremiah was a prophet to God's people foretelling the coming wrath at the hands of the Babylonians, hey, you guys have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter, Jeremiah essentially tells them the same exact thing. James is now telling the first century Israelites the very same thing. Hey, you guys have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. Just as Jeremiah warned the people that Babylon was coming to destroy them because of their deeds, so also Jesus and John the Baptist and I am now warning you that Rome is coming to destroy you because of the very same things. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered innocent men who were not opposing you. So that's his cry of woe to the rich. Just as Jesus said, woe to you who are rich. Here we have James echoing those words. Woe to you who are rich, but blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom. Now here we have James comforting the poor who are suffering at the hands of these rich oppressors. Verse 7. Be patient then, brothers. Right now you're suffering. Right now these rich people, they're exploiting you. They're opposing you. They're oppressing you. They're failing to pay your wages. God hears your cries. Be patient then, brothers. Until when? Until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop? And how patient he is for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Hey guys, it's just around the corner. Remember when Jesus said, hey, all this will happen before this generation passes away? Some of you who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. He's coming. The Lord's coming is near and he will judge those who are oppressing you. And at that time you will receive relief from those rich oppressors who are oppressing you, failing to pay your wages, who are exploiting you, who are dragging you into court, who are uh, slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong. Be patient. Take comfort. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? His coming is near, and at his coming you will receive the kingdom. Blessed are the poor. Theirs is the kingdom. But woe to the rich, because judgment is coming upon them. Back in James 5, verse 8, You too be patient 
Stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against each other, brothers, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. It's coming. Soon. So, back to Matthew 5. Matthew 5 here. So what do we make of it? Well, we won't let what we don't know rob us of what we do know, right? We do know what Luke says corresponds with what James says. And we do know the first century context. By and large, rich unbelievers were oppressing and slandering the noble name of the one to whom the poor believers belong. Okay? Does that all make sense? A lot of believers poor, a lot of rich people, unbelievers, suppressing and oppressing the poor believers. Okay? James and Jesus are essentially saying the same thing. Wrath coming on the rich. Hey, poor believers, take heart. The kingdom's yours. Relax. And we also know that, again, Jesus is making a distinction within the house of Israel. Not everyone who descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will receive the kingdom. It belongs to the poor or the poor in spirit. Either way, you want to take that. So right off the bat, in the beginning of these beatitudes, and that that word beatitude is simply, uh, it comes from a Latin term that means the same thing, fortunate or happy or blessed or blissful. Um, These beatitudes or these blessed are, in this first one we see here in verse 3, blessed are the poor or blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom. We see the connection to the kingdom. So that should get our attention. Whatever Jesus is saying in this Sermon on the Mount, has to do with the kingdom. And we've already seen the framework. The framework of typology has shown us that if Jesus is the new Moses, then he's giving a new law to the new people entering the new land. And this new law is embodied in the Sermon on the Mount. All right. So moving forward into verse 4. Matthew 5, 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. If you still have your place in Luke 6, go back there. I think this is another one of those that makes a lot of sense in light of what Luke says. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Luke says in Luke 6, 21b, Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. And then in verse 25b, he says, Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Alright, this goes kind of back to what James was saying. Okay? During that time frame, between 30 and 70 AD, you had these oppressors, these unbelievers who were scoffing, who were mocking, who were oppressing and insulting the believers. They're laughing it up. And Jesus says, Woe to you who laugh now, you will mourn. But blessed are you who mourn now. Those of you who are undergoing this punishment, this insulting, you will laugh when the judgment comes. There will be an ironic role reversal going on here. Okay. Now, this language that Jesus is using, again, it's not in a vacuum. It's with the backdrop of the Old Testament. Throughout the Old Testament, the prophets use this language of weeping and mourning and joy and laughter. Okay? In contrast with one another. Weeping and mourning, joy and laughter. God's prophets mess the message of God's prophets was often you've sinned against God, you've broken the law, you need to repent. 
or God's going to bring judgment upon you at the hands of a foreign army. Now, here's what would always happen. God would send his true prophet, like Jeremiah or Ezekiel, and they would say the truth. Hey, you're sinful, you need to repent, or God's going to bring an army against you and destroy you. But then, you'd have some false prophets who'd be saying, man, don't listen to Jeremiah over there. He's full of it. We're Israel. We're God's chosen people. God's got our back. Don't even listen to that. Now, what would typically happen is people would go, I like what the false prophet's saying. Of course, they wouldn't say that. They'd say, I like what that guy's saying. He's saying what our itching ears want to hear. He's making it okay for us to do what we're doing right now, even though it's wrong. You know what? I don't like what Jeremiah is saying. I don't like what Ezekiel is saying. So you know what? Let's throw him in a pit. Let's put him to death. Let's kill him. So the pattern was God's true prophet was persecuted or put to death because he was telling the truth and it wasn't what the people wanted to hear. But then the words would come true. Like, you know, Babylon did come and destroy Judah. And what would happen at that destruction? Weeping, mourning, lamenting. Hello, have you ever read the book of Lamentations? That's what it's all about. Weeping and mourning. Because God's wrath came upon his people who were no longer acting in ways that were pleasing to him. But when God redeemed his people and brought them back into the land... There was rejoicing. There was laughter. There was the sound of the bride and the bridegroom and the harp and the lyre and everything was lovely. So rejoicing and laughter has to do with prosperity. Weeping and mourning has to do with things not going so well. So Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount, both in Matthew 5 and the parallel account in Luke, kind of go something like this. Right now, for my true people, believers, doesn't look so hot for you. You have eyes to see. You have ears to hear. You understand that God's wrath is coming. You understand that God's not pleased with his covenant community. You understand that Jerusalem's about to be destroyed again. You hear the words of John the Baptist. You hear him saying, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath. The axe is already at the root. And they'll cut down every tree that does not bear good fruit and get thrown into the fire. You understand those words. You have eyes to see. You have ears to hear. You're mourning. You're lamenting. You're weeping now. You're being persecuted for righteousness. It's not looking so hot for you. Take comfort, though. Yours is the kingdom. You will be comforted. You will laugh when the judgment comes. But those who are doing the laughing right now, those who are doing the mocking right now, those who are doing the persecuting right now, the time is coming when they will get what they deserve and they will be put in their place and they will be doing the mourning after God's wrath comes. Just as it came in the form of Babylon 600 years ago, so now it's coming in the form of Rome. <clears throat> Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Alright, moving forward in the text. Matthew 5.5 5. Blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. Now, throughout the scriptures, that word earth and land are interchangeable. Oftentimes, the same word can be translated as earth or land. And most of the time, land is actually a better translation. But unfortunately, oftentimes, our English translations use the word earth. Now, you and I think when we hear the word earth, 
We think in terms of satellite imagery. We think in terms of global image, you know, outer space type stuff. But rather, I believe what is most often communicated through that term, earth, or rather land, is the promised land. So I believe that in essence what Jesus is saying here is, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the land. Now wait a minute. I thought they already inherited the land back in like Joshua 15. They did. The land was their inheritance. It was divided off. Judah gets this portion. Dan gets this portion. Naphtali gets this portion. They received it as their inheritance. They inherited the land. So why is Jesus talking about the meek inheriting the land? Because Jesus is talking about the antitype. Jesus is talking about the new land, the spiritual kingdom. Blessed are the meek, they will inherit the kingdom. Now this, Jesus' words here evoke all kinds of imagery and language and promises from the syllabus. And this makes a lot of sense of and employs all of the work that we did looking at the prophecies of Jeremiah, the prophecies of Ezekiel, all this talk about God's elect being gathered back into the land. All of this talk about the gathering of the elect back into the land, that, that here it is, right here. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the land. They will inherit the earth. Land not meaning geographical defined Israel and Palestine today. We're talking spiritual heavenly kingdom. So again, understanding the Old Testament prophets is crucial. Understanding typology is crucial. To the degree that you understand those things, you will have a better grip and grasp on what Jesus is saying about the kingdom. All right, moving forward. Matthew 5, 6. He says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. All right, flip back over to Luke. Here again, we've got another instance where Luke's words very much resemble Jesus' words. But you probably noticed by now that in addition to the fact that Luke adds these woes that correspond to the blessings, it seems that Matthew kind of makes things more spiritual. Luke's all like, blessed are the poor, <clears throat> blessed are the hungry. Matthew's like, blessed are the poor in spirit. Matthew's like, blessed are the, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's like, Matthew's like, making a real sermon out of it. Luke's just like, Right. So, so here's this here's this kind of parallel account in Luke, Luke 6, 21. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. And then if you go down to 25, you see the corresponding woe. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Well, this kind of again goes back to that whole first century context of rich and poor. Poor people go hungry. Rich people are well fed. Right? So the, those who are well-fed now are the rich. They're satisfied now. Hey, woe to you. You're well-fed you're well now. You're satisfied now. You will go hungry. Uh-oh. And that's going to happen at the same time that that judgment happens, that God's 
true people who are persecuted are released from that persecution. Blessed are those who go hungry right now, for you will be filled. Right? Let's kind of unpack that a little bit. I believe that we've got some literal manifestations of this, as well as some spiritual. All right? Let me explain what I mean. You had those who in the first century, the rich, who were well-fed at that time, and who were exploiting the poor believers. And at the time when Rome besieged Jerusalem, we have historians that have recorded for us the fact that people who were in Jerusalem were actually eating their children because of the famine due to the siege. Okay? Those who were well-fed between 30 and early 60s were in the siege of Jerusalem by Rome going hungry. Woe to you who are well-fed today within this generation. You will go hungry. Literally. You will eat your babies. And that's not the first time that happened. Again, history repeating itself. It happened in 586 when Babylon destroyed Jerusalem the first time. Woe to you who are well fed now. You will go hungry. But blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be satisfied. When the kingdom comes, you will receive your place at that great banquet where you feast upon Christ, who is the richest affair. You will feast upon he who is the bread of life, who truly satisfies not just your stomach, but your soul, your spiritual needs as well. All right, moving forward in the text. Verse 7 of Matthew 5. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Now, we've already discussed mercy at length. We looked at a parable, the parable of the unmerciful servant. And we saw there that just as the king of the kingdom is merciful, so also the citizens of the kingdom who have been showed mercy should pay that mercy forward. <clears throat> and in that parable, the unmerciful servant, the one who didn't show mercy to his fellow servant, he wasn't shown mercy. He was punished. So, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. In Jesus' generation, those who did not show mercy, they were punished according to their deeds. Every man must, quote, repaid according to his works. But those who are sons of the kingdom recognize God's grace, recognize God's mercy, and pay that mercy forward. What we have here is a connection between faith and actions, between faith and deeds. And we've already shown how James's words echo those of Jesus. Well, again, in James chapter 2, James echoes the idea of faith and deeds going together. He says, say a man has faith but no deeds. Can such faith save him? He goes on to say, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Yes, you're saved by, by grace through faith alone. That's it. Not by works. But... If you are saved, if you truly belong to God, if you have that kind of faith, it should show in your actions. God's kingdom people should be merciful. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Faith and deeds go hand in hand. God's kingdom people should be 
merciful people. They're shown mercy, their sins are forgiven, and they forgive others. All right, moving forward in the text, verse 8, Matthew 5, verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. (coughs) Blessed are the pure in heart. Notice the connection here with the heart. So much of what we're going to see in the next few weeks as we look at the Sermon on the Mount has to do with the heart. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. When it comes to righteousness, the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. Okay, it sounds cheesy, but it's true. The heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. You can appear to be pure on the outside. You can do all of the things that on the outside appear to be righteous and pure and good. But on the inside, it can be a completely different story. Okay? And Jesus says here, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. In his generation, he was speaking to a people, many of whom had come near to him with their lips, but their hearts were far from him. Many of whom were on the outside, like whitewashed, beautiful things, tombs, but on the inside, like full of dead men's bones and all kinds of unclean things. You can observe outwardly the law of Moses all day long and watch what you eat, but what goes into a man is not what makes him unclean. It passes through the body. It's what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. For out of a man's heart comes all kinds of wicked things. Murder, adultery, lust, envy, strife, all kinds of wickedness. That's why Jesus says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. They will see him. They will have eyes to see. But those whose hearts are not cleansed, those who are not changed from the inside out by a work of the Holy Spirit, those who do not participate in the rebirth and the regeneration, they will not have eyes to see. They will not see God. Their eyes will be closed to the truth. All right, moving forward. Verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. Once again, we have this distinction. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Jesus' audience thought, we're all sons of God. We're sons of Jacob. We're sons of Israel. We're all sons of God. He says, blessed are the peacemakers. They will be sons of God. As opposed to the haters. As opposed to the insulters. As opposed to the persecutors and the conflict creators. Blessed are the peacemakers. They will be the ones who are the sons of God. There are some who will be the sons of the devil. They will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is nothing new. This is how it had always been. It's been this way since Cain and Abel. It was this way with the prophets. Righteous people were persecuted by wicked people. Now, what was going on in the first century was interesting because in the past, the prophets were pointing to the law and saying, you guys are guilty of breaking the law. You need to repent and get right with God by observing the law. In Jesus' generation, a lot of the unrighteous people that were being called out by Jesus and John the Baptist and the apostles they were strict adherents to the law. They prided themselves on giving a tenth of their dill and cumin and spices and 
I mean, they were observing the law of Moses. Their unrighteousness, again, stemmed from the heart. It stemmed from within. So Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom. Now he kind of qualifies this and adds to it and gives shape and definition to it in verse 11. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Now notice Jesus kind of makes this one personal. In the past, it was all general. In, in all these previous beatitudes, it was, it was general. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn, whoever they are. Blessed are the meek, whoever they are. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, whoever they are. But here Jesus goes, you. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil junk about you because of me. I will be the reason you get persecuted, Jesus is saying here. In the past, people persecuted people for pointing at the law. Now, you're going to get persecuted for pointing to me and saying that I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through me. You're going to get persecuted for that. Don't get caught off guard. It's happening. He goes on and says, verse 12, Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So Jesus reminds them, hey, remember how it went with the prophets? That's how it's going to go with you guys. All right. One tricky thing about these Beatitudes, in my opinion, is application. Because it seems like some of the things that Jesus is saying have application only to his first century contemporaries, to his original audience. But then there's other things that seem like they could apply to all future generations for all time in the kingdom. So the question is, how do we know when something is strictly applicable to the first century only, and when they also apply to us. How do we know? My suggestion, my suggestion when it comes to making application of the Beatitude, where we've been this morning, is this. I think we can kind of divide these, these phrases up into some which have to do with circumstances, and others that have to do with character. Some of these beatitudes pertain to circumstances, and others pertain to character. Now, I believe the ones that pertain to circumstances most often will have application to those in the first century. They're geared towards his original audience, and they may not have any application for us today. Whereas those that pertain to character, I believe, are timeless precepts that you and I can apply to ourselves and to our children, and to our children's children, and to all who belong to the kingdom for generations to come. So, let's take a brief survey of what we've looked at and just kind of point out, is this circumstantial, or does this have to do with character? Can we make application of this today, or can we not? And then we'll close. So verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit. Now again, if this has to do with humility and recognizing one's need for God and his righteousness, and I'm a sinner in need of a savior, then that has to do with character, and that's obviously applicable, and that's a good thing. That's applicable to us today. We should be humble of heart, and we should recognize that we're not righteous in and of ourselves, and we are sinners in need of a savior. We need Jesus Christ and cry out to him. 
However, if this has more to do with being poor, then I believe that this is circumstantial. It has to do with the circumstances of those in the first century who were being exploited by the rich unbelievers. So I don't think that we can look at Luke's parallel account and go, Jesus said, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom. So, man, if I'm not poor, maybe I'm not a part of the kingdom. I don't think we can do that. That has to do with circumstances. That pertains to the original audience. Okay? So moving forward, in verse 4, Jesus says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Why would he say that? Well, that had to do with the original audience. That was circumstantial. They were mourning due to their circumstances. They were being exploited. They were being slandered because of the noble name of them, him to whom they belonged. The rich people were failing to pay them the wages that they were owed for mowing the fields. Their cries were going out to God. They were weeping. They were mourning. They recognized that Israel, God's covenant community in the first century, was under God's wrath. That was circumstantial. So I don't think that you and I can point to Matthew 5.4 and say, blessed are those who mourn. We should be mourning. In fact, I think it teaches just the opposite. Because again, in Luke's parallel account in Luke 6, he says, blessed are you who mourn now or weep now. You will laugh later. You will rejoice later. Well, this is later. This is post-judgment. This is post-70 AD. God's wrath came on the persecutors. And so those who were mourning at that point could go, ah, ha, ha, we were right, you were wrong. That's what you get. <laughs> the kingdom has come. It's time for rejoicing and laughter in the sound of the bride and the bridegroom and the tambourine and the lyre and the harp. This is rejoicing time, not mourning time. So does Matthew 5, 4 apply to us today? Blessed are those who mourn? No. Circumstantial. That pertains to the original audience. Moving forward, verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. That has to do with character. Meek comes from uh, the Greek word praus, praus, which means mild or gentle. Gentleness is a fruit of the spirit. That's a characteristic. That's a character trait. God's people should today, as always, embody the character traits that are pleasing to him. So embodying the, the characteristic of meekness is certainly applicable to you and I today. All right, verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. I believe this is normative. Thirsting for righteousness, desiring to be righteous, has to do with character. So we should embody this desire for righteousness. Now, if this, again, should rather be interpreted according to Luke's version, blessed are those who are hungry now, literally not eating food, for they will be filled, I think that we should interpret that as circumstantial and pertinent to the original audience who were undergoing hunger then. I, should, I don't think that we can point to Luke's version and go, I'm not going hungry. Maybe I'm not blessed. I'm not going hungry. Maybe I'm not a part of the kingdom. That's circumstantial. But if it should be interpreted as blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, that has to do with care. And that's that. All right. Verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Being merciful has to do with character. That's applicable to you and I today. That's normative for those who are citizens of the kingdom. Citizens of the kingdom should show mercy. Then and then. 
Verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Purity has to do with character. That's normal. That's applicable for you and I today. Verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Being peaceful, having a spirit of peace, that has to do with character. That is applicable to you and I today. That's normal. God's people should be peacemakers, not conflict creators, not haters, not slanderers, not persecutors, but peacemakers. Verse 10. Through 12, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. That's how they treated the prophets who were before you. Great is your reward in heaven. What do we do with that one? Well, I believe, again, that is circumstantial. They were undergoing persecution for their faith by their kinsmen according to the flesh and then by the Romans who were instigated after them. Are people persecuted for the name of Jesus today? Yes. Can they find comfort in these verses? I believe so. But I don't think that we can go to these verses and go, you know what? I'm not really being persecuted for the name of Jesus. Maybe I'm not blessed. Maybe I'm maybe the kingdom doesn't belong to me. Maybe I'm not truly a child of God. Circumstances. So in closing, we've identified the Sermon on the Mount as the antitype of the law. We've identified the Sermon on the Mount as the new law, the way of life for God's new people who are about to enter into the new land, a.k.a. the kingdom. But some of what Jesus had to say seemed to pertain to the original audience, and some seemed like it could have application to us today. So I gave a suggestion that we can kind of look at those and see it. Did this pertain to circumstances, or does this pertain to character? And those that pertain to circumstances, I believe we can leave that in the first century. But things that pertain to character, I believe we should embody. Um, when it comes to character, as far as I can see, God's desire for his people hasn't changed. God's desire for his people to be meek, to be humble, to be merciful, to be peacemakers... I've never once seen that, I've never seen those character traits condemned in Scripture. I've always seen them commended. God's desire for the character of his people is consistent, whether you're pre-Old Covenant, Old Covenant, or New Covenant. Again, the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. What does our heart look like? Are we merciful people? Are we people who are pursuing purity and hungry and thirsting for righteousness? Are we being meek? Are we being mild and gentle? Are we embodying those things? Are we being peacemakers? I believe we should be. In fact, it's for our own good to be because Jesus says, blessed are those who are embodying those things. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed. Fortunate or happy. And after all, as God's covenant people, as God's kingdom people, we should be shiny, happy people. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right, let's pray.